back in the fur shed. This is the Trapping Today podcast, and I am your host, Jeremiah Wood. The podcast is brought to you by... Cots Brothers Lures. This is Kyle with Cots Brothers. We're the proud sponsor of the Trapping Today podcast. Uh, you can visit our website at cotsbrothers.com. That's K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S.com. Awesome. Thanks, Kyle, for joining us. Uh, the podcast is also sponsored by Fur Harvesters Auction Company, uh, selling wild fur. Uh, it's where the world comes to buy wild fur. Uh, run auction house run by trappers for trappers. And uh, you can find more about them at furharvesters.com. And we'll be talking quite a bit more about them. So uh, we won't go into that too much detail just yet. We have a lot to cover in today's episode. I'm really excited to talk uh, fur prices and the fur market in general. And Kyle agreed to come on and give us some, some perspective from his viewpoint. Uh, you know, he's, he's done a lot in the fur market for a lot of years. So I thought it'd be great to, to have him come and chime in. Um, so, so Kyle, I thought I'd just go over just a broad overview of the market as I see it, and then you can kind of chime in on, on your thoughts. That sounds good. I'll, I'll be the uh, the Andy Richter to your Conan O'Brien. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so just a, a basic overview. We all kind of know if you've sold fur lately, uh, the last few years, we're in a low in the fur market, and, and it's been that way for quite some time. Uh, the fur market historically has always been up and down, and there are a number of different factors that have affected that. It's it's. Uh, I don't know, Kyle, is fur a commodity? What's your view on that? Is it a commodity or not? Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say that fur kind, kind of is a bit of a commodity, um, but it's, it's not really, uh, the world doesn't see it that way, I don't think, necessarily. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, I mean, just to, if you think in terms of commodity, what that means from our perspective is, the price is determined very heavily by supply and demand, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in that we we definitely we we definitely see uh, supply and demand driving the fur market now. And and I think what most people sometimes overlook is that um, supply and demand often is the reason for something to go up in price, but it also has a reverse effect in that supply and demand can also drastically reduce the price and change the overall market. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing that we've seen with fur prices and in, in the fur market in general is traditionally, you know, back in the day, um, there, you're, we, we all think back and we read back uh, to the old uh, writings, the old fur fishing game articles and books in the 30s and 40s. Uh, there were some pretty spectacular fur prices, um, even carrying into uh, the 50s all the way into some a fur boom in the late 70s and early 80s. But those early <clears throat> fur prices were uh, during a period of time when the most of the consumption of wild fur was domestic. So there right. was a, a lot of people wore fur in America. And we don't see that anymore, except in a few select areas, uh, maybe parts of New York City where there's uh, affluent people still wear fur. But for the most part, fur is just not a fashion item here anymore. So right. we rely on selling our fur to markets overseas like Russia, 
China and Korea. So that really makes it a little more difficult because there's so many more things other than just the U.S. economy that affects the price of wild fur. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and one thing, I just as, as you were making that statement, if we look at look back to like 1978 was a year that was a huge fur boom, and that was a year before I was born, so I didn't experience it, but definitely you hear all the stories and the crazy prices. And so... Let's take, for example, you know, at that time, um, if we compare it to 2013, some, or, or let's compare it to right now, a coyote that just sold for $140 on the last sale, um, that's more than what they brought in 1978. However, with inflation, a dollar in 1978 would be worth $4.05 in 2019. So to kind of compare things, um, certain items, uh, even though they seem high, a coyote seems high at $140 and people are fired up about it, it's not the same $140 as it was during a fur boom like 1978 because of that inflation. Um, you know, if we take into the inflation consideration, that $140 coyote in 78 would be worth about 25%. Uh, $35, which would be a lot less than what coyotes were bringing then. Right. So it's, it's, that's kind of a tricky thing uh, to, to when we analyze, you know, some prices are high and we'd like it, but compared to what we, what a trapper makes at their regular job, um, it's almost not affordable to trap certain animals, even when they are high. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, the, the inflation thing is something we often overlook, or sometimes we discount it a little bit, like, oh, it's not a big deal. But like you said, four times um, the, the value of the same dollar, that, that really is a big deal. And that wasn't all that long ago. Right, right. So uh, the things that we're looking at as far as what drives the fur market today, in my view, is how the economy is doing in the fur-consuming countries. Russia is probably the biggest one. Uh, China is a very big one. China is a little complicated because they use fur, but they also do a lot of fur manufacturing that's sold into other places. So, so those economies have to be in decent shape for fur to be produced or purchased by producers and, and as well as purchased the end products purchased by consumers. Um, what drives these economies? Um, Russia, we know the majority of the Russian economy is dependent on production and export of oil. And oil prices are very, very low uh, right now. They, they, they hit a bottom, they came up a little bit, and they're back down the last few weeks. So, so that's, you know, Russian economy is not doing well. Uh, people aren't making a lot of money. People consequently aren't spending a lot of money on expensive items like fur. Um, any any uh, thoughts on that, Kyle? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a big one. We we, we need Russia back in the fur market, and and as you we were talking, I, I went back to Google and, and pulled up another figure. Uh, right now, the conversion is one dollar equals sixty four rubles. Um, when in order to see Russia back in the fur market, it needs to be closer to about one dollar equaling nine to 15 rubles i would say um so with that conversion that's an indicator as to 
to the economic struggles there, which prevents them from being the player that they normally are in the fur market. So definitely um, that that has an impact on, on certain markets, uh, especially the, the trim and and Russians are known for fur hats too. So, you know, if we, if, if that situation turns around to where the Russian buyers can, can jump back in the market, uh, I think that will greatly increase, uh, the demand for certain items like raccoons, um, coyotes, uh, the trim items, red fox, ranch fox, um, the, the items that the Russia, the Russian buyers are, are kind of known for. So that's a, that's a definitely a big, uh, a big factor right now in the fur market for sure. Do you remember what the dollar to ruble uh, rate was back in like 2014 when fur prices were high? I don't, but I know somebody does. Let me say, yeah, that's a great point you make about the, the, the strength of the U S dollar and the strength of other currencies is really a big deal. Like even if the, if other currencies remain stable, if the U.S. dollar uh, gets stronger, it it automatically decreases other countries' purchasing power in terms of U.S. dollars. So a strong dollar may be a good sign that our economy is doing pretty well, but it also means fur is going to be more expensive for other countries. Right. So in 2014, the ruble was actually worse than it was now. Really? Uh, let me let me go back here to like 2012. Yeah, because that's China. that's about the time when things turn for the worse too. Yeah. Let's let's get a little bit further back here. Um, a lot so, of these indicators have a little bit of a lag to them as well. Yeah. So let's see here. Uh, 2012 ruble to dollar conversion. Um, it's hard to look back here. Yeah, so 2012, it was 31. It's about it, the the value was one dollar equaled 31 rubles versus 64 rubles, and that was on the downhill side. I bet if we went back to like 2011, we would see it even even a little bit better in Russia's favor. So basically um, in so Russia's that, currency, they right now they can purchase half the amount of fur in rubles that they yes. did before. Yeah. Whereas if you look at, that's one thing that makes a big difference. If you look at the uh, the conversions that way, when the ruble's strong, they can actually pay more for a raccoon skin and it's actually costing them less than when they pay less and the conversion is is very poor. Yeah. Um, so that that definitely that kind of stuff definitely has a big impact. And uh, how about China? I know China's economy seems to be just driven primarily by growth. They're just constantly, you know, they're they're kind of a difficult country to track because they act a little bit like the U.S. economy, but they're also the economy is kind of half free market, half controlled by the government. Um, and yeah. <laughs> growth has and kind of been the biggest thing with China, and that growth has really been slowing down the last few years. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would, I would. China is interesting. Um, uh, I, I'm trying to choose my words carefully because I don't, I don't want to get into politics too much. But when we have leadership in Washington, um, basically setting tariffs and stuff against China. 
um, that, that kind of stuff, it doesn't have a direct impact, not necessarily, other than it can cause for some tensions, which at times does translate to if you alienate buyers, um, they're going to say, you know what, I'm not going there to buy for this year. Yeah. Um, so I do know some of that plays into the China's willingness to buy things um, because everybody, no matter where you live in the world, um, I would say most of us have more in common than we have in different. And with that being said, you know, if you hurt people's feelings or, or are rude to them, they're going to probably shy away from certain things. And I can't help but think that maybe has played into the fur market in certain instances. Um, not a huge, large factor, but when we're trying to recover, I think every little thing does add up. Um, so we definitely need, um, we need to make sure we're as a government, as a country that we have good relations with people that want to do business with us and, and open the doors to free trade because that's what really strengthens the market. Yeah. Unfortunately, we are so dependent on that international market that, uh, the, the little tiny bit of the economy that's the fur industry could get bounced around pretty easily in, in the midst of yeah. everything else that's going on. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one, one other big factor, so we talk about supply and demand, the fur-consuming countries, but uh, you may have a better number than I do. You probably do, but I've, I've seen in various places somewhere around 80% of the fur that's produced in the world is, is ranch fur. And, in, right. you know, back in the days when I think we as trappers all have kind of a, a mixed relationship with the ranch fur industry. I mean, uh, the way I see it, uh, it's obvious that ranch fur has taken over the market share that used to be primarily wild fur. Like back in the 30s and 40s, wild fur pretty much drove the market. And so uh, when there was a shortage of fur, uh, trappers tended to benefit. Now, uh, uh, at the same time, uh, we, we're kind of at the mercy of the ranch market, but um, if it wasn't for uh, ranch, the ranch fur market, we may not have much of a fur market at all. So what are your thoughts on that? Right. Yeah, so, so there's a few different ways to look at it. And, and, you know, we talk about commodities and to make the comparison. I would say, to a degree, ranch mink are like the Dow Jones of the fur market. And is that something... Um, that uh, happened purposely, probably not. It was just fashion and the buyers and the way it worked out, as you stated, um, you know, years ago, ranch fur was not as prevalent because it was, it was something kind of new. And, and over the last few decades, uh, you know, there was a lot of interest in ranch fur, so naturally production grew. And I think at the peak here a few years ago when ranch mink were averaging up over $100, the estimated production was somewhere in the neighborhood of like $100 million, $90 million roughly. Um, but it's I don't know that anybody can, can put an exact figure on it. Yeah. But we'll use the $90 million figure. Um, with that $90 million, we have organizations like the International Fur Trade Federation, Fur Commission USA, organizations uh, that are funded largely from ranch mink 
and they also do a lot for on legislative issues like the LA fur ban, New York fur ban. Groups like that are fighting hard, and they're representing the fur industry when they're doing those things. So naturally, trappers benefit from that. Um, so now, with that being said, one of the problems I see is is this year, you know, these recent sales, the mink have not sold well at all. Um, there's been some some good clearances, but the averages are way, way down. And then production, I've heard that the estimate could be as low as like 27 million this wow. year. Wow. So less so, possibly a quarter of what it was. Yeah. Yeah. So if you look at that figure, that's going to affect revenues to those different organizations and groups. So, you know, that, that is a little bit of a, a problem. I, I guess I kind of take the standpoint that that you know a lot of a lot of trappers may say well we need to see the ranch mink drop down so that there's more value in buying a muskrat well i don't know that that's always a fair analysis uh to say we want we want it balanced is what i would say we don't want too many and 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 that's probably what happened is is the ranch mink got going so good that production did far exceed the supply but it took a couple of years for that to catch up. And then other bigger component is fashion. If fashion changes away from that item, now you've got an even bigger complicated problem because it's not just supply and demand, it's the interest level is not there. So one thing, you know, we're talking about China, so you, you use them at China. I would say China, the Chinese are, are experts at managing cash flow. Um, they're not going to buy a bunch more of something than what they really need. And if they see that all at once ranch mink are not selling or a certain item is not selling, um, even if that item drops in price to 10% of what they were paying, if it's not selling, they're not going to buy it. Mm-hmm. Just because it's on, just because it's on sale, you don't need it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so, if with that being said, that would be, I that again, tends I'm not to an further expert drop on, prices down, right? Yeah, I'm. I'm not an expert on ranch mink by any stretch of the imagination. I have a lot of friends that are mink farmers that I talk to. I can, you know, we can all look at the results of the sales, and. And that's where I'm kind of speculating on my theory there a little bit, but but it seems to make sense. Yeah, and and I follow the cattle markets a little bit. Uh, I have some beef cattle, and it seems to me like the the ranch fur market is just like the cattle market, but on steroids, where mm-hmm. you see high prices and everybody gets into the game and increases production. Of course, you know, with ranch, uh, with ranch mink, for instance, uh, I'm sure you can increase production a lot faster than a cow calf producer can can increase uh, their herd size with you know growing uh, typically one calf born per cow. Um, exactly. So yeah. so that that happens quickly. They increase production, and they kind of it seems like the just the human element of of markets is they tend to look at what's happened in the past instead of trying to uh, predict what's going to happen in the, over the next few years. So they see high prices in the past, need to increase production to take advantage of those high prices. By the time production goes up, all of a sudden those prices aren't there anymore because there's more supply than there is demand. So Right. And then you get into the, the issue too is, is 
when the market started to drop, so when mink went from $100 to $50, you mm -hmm. have some ranchers saying, well, to get the same... you got to sell twice as many. To get the same fur check, <laughs> yep. to get the same fur check, I'll just raise twice as many mink. Yeah. And it that was a problem. It continues to drive it down, right? Yes, that's a big problem. That, and, and you can't blame the, the a producer for doing that because um, no different. It would be easy if, if you know, you had bills to pay and you said, well, I'm going to work twice as many hours to pay them. Nobody could blame somebody for doing that. However, when you're dealing with something like fur, it's that's a little bit of a tricky situation. Yeah. Now, I've heard a little bit, and, and maybe you can help me out on this. I read in a couple of places that uh, during those that 2013, 2014 kind of boom, that China started really getting into the ranch mink game and started producing their own their own ranch mink. Um, do you know that is correct? And how has that played out over the last few years? Well, I think that that's that that is something that's kind of a wild card because during that time, I had different people. You know, they in in North America and in Europe. You there was predictions, and there's they keep track of what's being produced. Whereas China was a bit of a wild card. Yeah. Nobody knew how many mink were actually being raised in China, and a lot of those mink, it's not like they're going to Saga Furs or North American Fur Auctions or Copenhagen right. to where they're really accounted for. They were just being utilized within China. Um, so that's another another tricky scenario. And, and again, you can't really blame China. I mean, that's just business is hey we need this item we could make some here um the one thing that i have been told is like the the quality was maybe a little bit less but it was good enough yeah so you know at a certain point they're like hey we can we can increase our profits by just raising the mink here ourselves so that's that's uh and they didn't have to pay the import tariffs either Exactly. Yeah. And, and there was, I can't remember the whole story now, but in that time frame too, there was a, there was a, a Chinese buyer that was doing some shady dealings um, where they were basically not paying taxes. And he was one of the largest importers. Mm -hmm. He got arrested and put in jail. And when that happened, that was a downward turning point for the ranch mink. Um, I can't remember the whole story. Are you familiar with it? Yeah, that I remember rebuild? reading. I remember reading about yeah. it. Um, and there, yeah, and there's a few people that got arrested, and and it sounded like uh, it really increased the uh, uh, the the rest of the Chinese buyers were a lot less uh, willing to take risks and willing to exactly. buy U.S. fur because they were very concerned about um, getting in a in a jam the way this guy did. Right. Right. So, yeah, crazy stuff going on in, uh, across the world, and, and uh, we have little control over it, and sometimes we don't even know when it's going on. But Yeah, um, and, and it's, it's funny to me, I, a lot of trappers, like I can remember, it's been, I think it was either last fall or the year before, I had a guy, a customer call from Missouri, what are furs doing up your way, he asked, <laughs> and it's like... The same they're doing there. We're all together. Whether you're in Missouri or Illinois, the fur market's the same because it's a global thing. Um, and that's that's something I think I would always say to trappers is 
is whether you're a trapper in New Mexico or Maine, Florida or Idaho, uh, the floor market is the same. It's just we produce different quality and different animals, but the overall market is is it's a global enterprise. Yeah. yeah. So, um, anything else to wrap up on the overview of the fur market? I don't think so. I think we touched on the, the main points. Now we know what everybody wants to hear. What are the prices? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we have wrapped up the fur selling season for 2018-2019. Uh, there may be a little bit more selling that goes on here and there, but the major auctions are completed. Uh, I, I would assume most of the buyers have what they need uh, for the upcoming season. So uh, what I was going to do is sort of read through a couple of uh, reports from the auctions and and then we'll get into uh, some more some details on specific items and kind of look at where we're at with fur prices. Mm-hmm. So uh, I want to start with a report from Mark Downey, who is the uh, president of uh, Fur Harvesters Auction. And and uh, I would say, you know, maybe you and I, Kyle, are, are a little bit uh, partial to, to fur harvesters, uh, but not necessarily going to say uh, that you need to sell your fur in one place or another. And uh, we're not going to try to bash any uh, particular auctions or anything. Um, but uh, you may maybe people will hear a little bit of a bias on, on, <laughs> from us uh, toward FHA, perhaps. But uh, hopefully we're, we're going to give you a straight down the middle report of what's going on. Um, so so this is from Downey and there's something a little bit fishy that was going on. So uh, I'm just going to let him uh, describe what happened here. So uh, sale result report from May 24, 25, 2019. It says, uh, prior to the start of our auction, we received well wishes and encouraging messages from most of the world's auction houses, as we often, most often always do days prior to our auctions. At times like this, when the market's struggling, it's so very much appreciated as we're all in the same boat. However, the evening of our auction, we started receiving messages from a great many of the buyers that had already arrived here in North Bay. The message was the same, a document released from a competitor stating that their offering the morning of May 23rd had increased on several species. In particular, muskrat had increased from 90,000 to 208,000, and raccoon had increased from 252,000 to 424,000 in just 12 hours. This was sent to our buyers the evening prior to our auction. In both cases, the quantities more than doubled, and questions of where this volume could come from was paramount, as this much volume was not even produced the past few years. The timing of this tactic was not well received by a great number of buyers forwarding it to us. However, the morning of the 25th began the beaver sale, and when we concluded, we realized an increase of over 30% over our March auction in Finland. Muskrat price levels increased with very strong clearances. Our coyote auction surpassed March levels, and we succeeded in hitting a top of $140 once again for eastern coyotes. Wolves, wolverine, taxidermy items sold extremely well. Uh, Lynx cats and Martin are being sold next month in Finland uh, on June 10th. We're going to go over that a little bit here shortly. Uh, Our auction house is proud to announce we received the vast majority of the total Lynx cats harvested in the top seven western states for 2019. Uh, Our collection 96% fresh. He talks a little bit more about the collection. We continue to see ranch mink levels fall in both price and production levels. Next year's North American ranch mink crop is felt 
to come in at around two and a half million. This was the type of volume American Legend was doing at the end. Wild fur has started to show signs of recovery on many species, and this was evident in our record numbers of new buyers attending this sale, uh, in particular close to 30 Chinese buyers. This was dir a direct result of our 2019 tours through northern China. Uh, in closing, we wish to sincerely thank all those who attended our auction as well. Uh, we wish our competition uh, to our south a good sale in the days to come. As, as we mentioned earlier, we're all in the same boat. And then he goes on to say, Fur Harvester's auction was built and stands on integrity. Integrity in the way we treat our shippers. Integrity in the way we treat our buyers. Integrity in the grading of our wild fur assortments. Respectfully, Mark Downey. So what do you think, Kyle? Well, I think they had a good sale. I start <laughs> with that. Um, that was, it, 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 you know, I, I think everybody's hoping for higher prices, the auction houses, the trappers, both. But given the state of the market where we're at, especially the beaver, I think it went better than what uh, they thought it was. And so that's a very encouraging sign. Now, to to offer some speculation on, on the, you know, I, I'm, I'm not afraid to say, to, to clarify what he's talking about. There's right before the sale, um, if the NAFA sale comes right after the fur harvester sale and NAFA greatly increased the offering on muskrats and on raccoon. So this is speculation, um, on, on my part, but what I do know is this. With NAFA, a lot of the larger mink ranchers, say a mink rancher was going to get a had a $10 million fur check, which some of the large ones do have that kind of revenue. What NAFA will do is they'll offer them basically a reduced commission if they leave the money, basically reinvest in NAFA. Essentially, NAFA is paying them interest if, say, they sold $10 million worth of mink. For tax reasons, they say, keep $5 million, send us $5 million. On that $5 million NAFA keeps, they pay the rancher interest on that, and they use that to operate. I have no problem with that. That's actually smart business on NAFA's part. Mm -hmm. um, so what does NAFA do with that money? A few years ago, I was told that NAFA bought coon at their sale, paid the trapper for them, bought those coon. Um, and then at some point, NAFA will resell those skins that they bought. My speculation is that that's where the bump in the offering came from, is those were NAFA-owned skins that they put on the sale, which is fine. It's just a little bit unfortunate that the timing of when they changed the offering was such that it threw red flags to buyers, because that not only affects fur harvesters, it also affects NAFA, because a lot of the buyers go from auction to auction. They start at... In May, for harvesters first, then they'd go to NAFA, then they'd go over to Helsinki. That's how it works. So, you know, I think Mark's Mark's statement there is is really uh, well said and, and very classy uh, in just stating how things happen. And and I think he touches on the key point in that we're all in this together. And what my explanation, I am in no means bashing NAFA. I'm simply saying um, I am being a little critical of the timing because that affects everybody. You you don't want, it, you know, to make the decision to sell those extra skins that were NAFA owned, 
you know, you could have made that decision a little bit earlier so that the buyers were aware of what was available on the market. Um, with that being said, I still think, you know, fur harvesters had a good sale on muskrats and raccoon in light of that, those additional skins coming on the market. And really, NAFA didn't have that bad of a sale either. I mean, NAFA had, a, I think, overall NAFA sale was very comparable to fur harvesters uh, for the most part. Uh, I, I, I would say it was... I think both sales maybe, with the exception of wild red fox and mink, which I think we'll get into the yeah we'll get into some here in a minute. Here. Yeah, yeah. I think overall, what I would I would pull a couple things out of this. Uh, number one, there's a lot of fur hanging around in places uh, that has been produced over the past several years that has not found an ultimate home, so it's mm-hmm. always possible that this fur pops up. Um, from different places. Uh, part number two, um, business is business. And uh, the way this happened, it was unfortunate, uh, but I think, you know, we're probably all better off just to uh, give everyone the benefit of the doubt and uh, just move on. I mean, we're, like you said, right. we're all in this together and, and uh, it was unfortunate, but that stuff happens once in a while. Not a yeah. big deal. I think they handled it well. And uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead. And, and ultimately, if, if NAFA did have those skins that they were holding, we want them to get those skins sold. Oh, absolutely. To me, that, yeah. that's the positive. <laughs> yeah. Get them, get them in the, get them out on the market. Um, get them, get them put into garments, and and get get them moving down the supply line because that's what keeps the whole thing going. Yeah, and I think that that uh, really a lot of people, a lot of people are upset when their fur doesn't sell, but a lot of people are upset when their fur gets low prices and i think we don't often think of it in terms of the auction house's perspective where Mm -hmm. they're stuck in between two competing interests where they have to try to get the best price but they also have to move fur because every time they hold back fur and it doesn't sell it's going to just add and add to the supply and it can it just kind of pushes things down the road Um, right so it's a tough in the arc yeah, the, the auction houses, you know, if they don't sell something, they don't get paid either. And right. they they need the money to market. They need the money for staff. They need the money to keep things going. And naturally, you know, as Mark stated in that, we're all in this together. And with lower fur prices, they see lower revenues too. So they have to be very cautious in, in their marketing. And, and it's it's kind of a vicious circle at times when it's, when it's during the challenging years because – like you say, I mean they, they, uh, they need the uh, they need the money just like the the trapper or the rancher does. Yeah, absolutely. So that was the main FHA sale, and as people know, they held the Martin and Bobcat back to sell in June in Helsinki in conjunction with the Saga Furs auction. So uh, those results, the the actual numbers are not out yet. But I did email Mark Taylor to get an update, and uh, most of you guys have heard from Mark. He was on episode 61 of the podcast, and he talked about fur grading and the auction process. Uh, so Mark uh, just sent me this message uh, to give you guys an update. He said, just returned uh, to work today from Helsinki. Overall, the sale was a little disappointing for both Martin and Katz. The Martin prices have been on a decline over the past few years and continued on this past sale. Many Martin are purchased for trim on ranch mink coats. 
With Ranch Meek selling at rock bottom levels, the price for Martin has dropped significantly as well. As for the cats, the orders for cats were limited this sale as well. This trend is evident in many fur fads as they only last so long until a new one comes along to take its place. What we saw was selective demand on heavy white bellied cats, but better clearances on more commercial type skins from central and northern parts of the US and Canada. Um, so without getting a price update, that's basically just you know similar to what we've seen uh, the past few months. Uh, the the demand, uh, you know, cats, ha buyers have been much more selective uh, on cats and Martin have continued to decline. So, uh, Kyle, what do you think about getting into some specific prices? That sounds good. I, we can analyze a little bit more. <laughs> my, my head is hurting right now because I just spent a couple hours before I called you to compile some of these numbers because I want, yeah. to be able to, I want to be able to give people uh, just a little bit of an overview of the past two years, uh, how things have been going, and maybe help determine where we might be headed. Um, mm -hmm. And this is far more confusing than most people think. So you have to be very careful when you read an auction report uh, that you're comparing apples to apples. And the, the auction uh, process is incredibly complex so i wanted to start by just giving an overview of kind of how the the ins and outs of reading an auction report because it's not like going you know looking in the back of fur fishing game and seeing the numbers and oh uh, bobcats are 300 dollars and fisher 25 and this and that it, it it's you just can't there's so many different types of fur and fur from different areas that that's uh, grouped together um, and uh, really in order to be able to say how compare how things have gone um, you know like for Bobcat I've got one two three four I've got five different five or six or seven different grades and and lot types for Bobcat uh, for the last couple of years in the NAFA and FHA auctions to compare so uh, yeah. <laughs> if you're comparing a Bobcat you need to compare a Western Bobcat to a Western Bobcat uh, a north central bobcat to a north central bobcat, Canadian, uh, southern, southwest, uh, NAFA, NAFA will grade will will um, grade them as southwest, north central, and Canadian east. Uh, FHA both will grade have a western grade. Uh, FHA will grade central, south, and Canadian, um, and this varies with with cats, with coyotes, with marten. Uh, the way they categorize coon are the worst probably the way they categorize these grades there's not always uh, a lot that you can compare apples to apples between the two auctions and there's also sometimes the auctions will will lot specific grades together or split them apart from auction to auction just depending on what the demand is for that item um, so so yeah, that's, really, a, that's a trick that's a tricky thing to, to keep track of, like you're saying. And sometimes volumes really affect, too, how they they yeah. group things together also. Yeah. Yeah, and if guys want to update, want to get a little bit better on that, uh, Mark Taylor's interview, episode 61, was a really good one for trying to go through that stuff. Um, so, so lotting varies. Um, one of the biggest things you need to pay attention to with the auction reports is percent sold. So... Uh, not all items sell during the auction. Uh, in a low fur market for items there's not a lot of demand on, 
a lot of times be somewhere between 25 and 75% of the actual furs offered will be sold. So what if 25% were sold, but those were only the best uh, furs? Like say you had bobcats that sold 25%, but the top 25% is what was sold. If you look at the auction results and look at the average for those bobcats, you're only seeing the average for the top 25%. So if you compare that to another auction where 100% sold, you got the top, the middle, and the bottom all averaged together. Um, so it, it, in order to uh, to really understand a price, I think, Kyle, you can correct me if you disagree, but I think that uh, in general, the closer you get to 100% sold, is the, you're, the closer you're going to be to an actual representative price for that item. Yeah, for, for sure. I, I think clearance is important. And then also, you know, it's it's so tricky because like like you just used the bobcats as an example and there's other items like say beaver if you take a a northern range heavy beaver versus a hatter type southern beaver even though they're both called beaver they're essentially two different markets and so you know you can have market trends within uh the same animal in some years We've seen it where the very heavy shearing type beaver have very, seen very weak markets and the hatters have been high to the point that the market is actually demanding an inferior quality beaver. <laughs> so it, it is very tough to, to analyze things. Like you said, it's, it's very tricky. Um, and then the grading process as a whole, um, that's something a lot of trappers sometimes don't understand because it, until, until you travel, like, for me, I didn't really understand fur grading until I started trapping a lot of other places. Mm -hmm. And then you could start to see, wait a second, this Mississippi coon does not look like the raccoons I'm used to catching. Yeah. <laughs> and then it, it, then then you start to see there is a, a, a great difference in, in the different grades and sections of certain items. Um, so, yeah, I mean, to, to really get a good indication, you have to look at you kind of have to analyze the clearances and then look at what is actually selling because like you said sometimes it's the top 25 percent the very best heavy bobcats for example and then other times it's the inferior lower quality depending exactly. on what they're using yep. the buyer finds more value in paying less for a cheaper skin so it's basically just it's, what it's, the auction house determines is what they need to get for that item and then how that compares with what the buyer thinks it's worth really mm -hmm. and sometimes the buyer thinks the top items are worth more sometimes the buyer wants a cheaper item and they're willing to pay a little uh, higher price for it because they don't need that top end right mm -hmm. um, the other thing to think about is something called private treaty sales so the mm -hmm. pt sales are basically uh, when when the auction process takes place, uh, there's a certain number of furs that are not sold. After the auction is completed, oftentimes the auction house will offer those furs at private treaty. And basically, that's just like uh, an agreed upon amount. Uh, kind of, I don't know, would you compare it to like a tag sale or a yard sale? I mean, uh, basically they open up the store and say, this is what we got to have. And, and people will pick up what they they still need after the auction's done. Yeah, basically b before the auctions, the before the auction even happens, 
naturally, when they get the grading complete and they finish the catalog, they put a value on every single lot. And so a lot of times if you listen to either NAFA or for harvesters, they start their bidding in relation to the value of the lot. And a lot of times, depending on the item and their feelings for the market, say they have an item valued at $100 um, and the buyers want to pay 90 a lot of times they'll take the 90 or start the bidding at the 90 um, And then there's other items if they feel the market's climbing, they're not going to go below the valuation. So with that being said, that valuation, if after the sale, if the buyer comes back and said, hey, I'd be interested in this lot, I think, generally speaking, they will try to sell it at their pre-auction valuation. If they can get that, they go ahead and sell a private treaty. And I think if their feelings are that, you know, maybe the market is declining on a certain item, then they probably will maybe come off their valuation by a few dollars or a small percentage just to get the item moved. Um, So that's, but yeah, private treaty sales, uh, I think, especially in the more recent times where we have not necessarily seen 100% clearances on everything. I think a lot of buyers do come back and and both auction houses have been able to move things private treaty after the sales. Yeah, and and sometimes if the private treaty, uh, the private treaty sales may or may not be incorporated into the averages that you see in the report. Sometimes the, the private treaty will take place right at the sale on the same day or the next day and that will be incorporated in the report usually. But other times, the private treaty might take place a month or two later um, or in between yeah. auctions. And, and the only way to know then is if you have FERS that are there, you just log into your account and you'll see something. All of a sudden, you may have uh, a dozen coyotes that were held over. Well, coyotes are not a good example because they're selling so well right now. But you may have a dozen otter held back and all of a sudden you'll pull up your account and you'll see six of those otters sold for an average of $25. Uh, that mm-hmm. typically meant that they were sold private treaty. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, um, the, the other day I was emailing with Don Rumford at for Harvesters and he had mentioned that this last sale, um, he, the, they haven't closed it out yet. And he was actually hoping after Helsinki is over that per, perhaps they would maybe see, um, a few more private treaty sales yet. Okay. So cross our fingers, hopefully yep. that is the case. Another thing is terminology. So there's a few items that are listed as as a, a specific uh, ter- type of item or specific term that are not what trappers would call those. Uh, the two uh, big ones would be uh, sable. Uh, on the auction report, if you see sable, they're referring to martin. But a lot of the Russian buyers call Martin Sable. That's that's what they call them in Russia. So uh, they'll have them listed as Sable for consistency with what, what the buyer is looking for. So if you see Sable, that's Martin. Uh, Bobcat are always called Lynx Cat on the auctions. So they don't they won't list Bobcat. They'll list Lynx Cat. Lynx Cat are Bobcats, and Lynx are Lynx. So uh, there may be a few others there, but, but that's one thing to watch. Uh, the, the grading, we talked about grading terminology. Just make sure you're consistent with what the grades are when you look at prices. Um, another thing is ignore the top lots. I never report top lots. The auction companies always report what the top lot was, and that seems to be to me is more of a marketing strategy than it is 
it's like uh, it's like seeing someone who won the lottery and it gets everybody excited about playing the lottery, right? Um, the, the top lot is a very small percentage of the overall sale. A lot of times it is the best selection of skins, but a lot of times their fur buyers will pay more than the top lot is worth in order to get their name and their certificate as a top lot buyer. That's kind of a good advertisement for, for the buyers. Um, so the top lot, uh, I don't even consider it when I'm looking at auction results. Um, and then the other thing, uh, the auction, has uh, an 11% commission, both auction houses, unless you're part of a special program uh, that you can buy into. But generally you're talking, you're, when you see these prices, they do not include the 11% deduction for commission as well as any drumming fees or CITES tag fees for Otter and Bobcat. Um, and then again, and then finally, uh, we are reporting all prices in US dollars. So our friends to the north in Canada will have to convert those numbers. Anything else on, on the interpreting the auction results, Kyle? No, I think you pretty much covered it. That, you know, the top, I'm glad you said that about the top lots because a lot of times the top lots are bought from the buy. They're buying some prestige with that. Um, the auction houses generally, you know, will really will show pictures of the person with that top lot, and it's that's kind of a um, kind of a a nice. Uh, I don't know. I, I, it's more of a promotion. It's kind of a nice thing to do for the buyers, um, but it's it sometimes can affect the average, uh, but not really, because generally, like I know a few years ago when things were hot and they had like the top lot of raccoon, I think sold for like two hundred fifty dollars. Well, there was only ten skins in that lot, yeah. so it doesn't. You know, when you're offering a hundred thousand to put ten skins in that lot, it doesn't really affect the average. But I do know. Uh, there were that that particular year I, I remember one local trapper that catches a lot of raccoon he had two coon in that top lot at like 250 dollars wow. so he's pretty excited yeah, he, oh yeah it's good if you're the top lot guy <laughs> yeah <laughs> absolutely i think that top lot thing is is probably similar to for people who live in rural areas if you have a 4-h club and they sell they have baby beef program uh, all exactly. the, the, buyer, yep. <laughs> the buyers will yep. pay way more than than those critters are worth exactly yep all right so you pick the species kyle and and we'll look at some results okay what do we want to start with ah uh, you, you start however your notes are compiled <laughs> <laughs> okay well we're all over the the map really uh maybe we should start with bobcats so bobcats okay. have been a specialty item. Um, the, the, the cats, I think everybody's heard this a million times from all of us, those uh, cats with the nice white uh, bellies that are well-spotted and, and really heavy furs are, are the, the best of the best. Um, several years ago, cat prices were, averages were really high. We were five to $700 on those really good cats and it kind of brought everything up uh, as far as cats were concerned. Lately, what seems to be happening is that that select uh, bobcat has become narrower and narrower, and the buyers are really getting picky because they don't need as many of those bobcats. So the price for the Western heavy bobcats is maintaining a pretty high level, but the, the rest of the bobcats from other parts of the country are really falling off uh, quite a bit. So the looking at the we don't have the fur harvesters results from helsinki yet but the nafa 
bobcats uh, overall sold at 50% and the western cats were $320 average. So we don't know whether, you know, you could, you'd have to actually go through all the catalogs to determine uh, whether those are the better westerns or the, the less desirable. Um, if you compare that to fur harvesters in March, um, we'll look at both March sales. In March, fur harvesters, bobcats averaged, western cats averaged $415, and the NAFA ones averaged $391. Those were 78% and 95% sold, respectively. And going back a little further, um, let's compare that to what happened last year. Last, So, so we're talking, what, three... Three four hundred dollars on average for those really good cats, and last year for harvesters May uh, sold about half of them, averaged six hundred and fifty three. NAFA sold ninety two percent in May, averaged three ninety one. FHA sold ninety nine percent in March, averaged five ninety eight. So we, if you look compared to twenty eighteen, we're we're that that market's fallen quite a bit. Yeah, that that is, and and you know you touched on the white bellies. It is so tough with bobcats. Um, I was texting with JP Wilson, uh, here after the fur harvester sale. And, and he's saying, you know, I have such a, he said, I have cats that I think are $500 and they sell for 10. And then I have cats that are 20 bucks and they end up selling for 500. (laughs) And the thing with bobcats to keep in mind is, is it's really tough. Um, the great, especially for the trapper, um, they can range so much. Um, you have, of course, size is always a little bit of a factor. But then, like you mentioned, the clarity of the belly, um, which is meaning the how much the spots stand out, and then also the width of the belly, um, how much white there is. So when you factor in, there's so much variance in the bobcats. Um, when last January, I was at for harvesters, and Greg Schroeder had... Uh, his grading table, he had Colorado Bobcats. And I am no expert Bobcat grader, but I've always felt like I can say, hey, that one's pretty good or this one's pretty bad. Um, But to look at those 25 cats, out of 25, there was probably only like two that would go together in the same lot. And they're all from the same state. So that gives you an idea as to, especially when you're looking at clearances, if buyers are looking for one thing, it's very easy to have it affect the clearance because cats range so much, even within one state, one region. Um, You know, not all heavy bobcats are the same because you have the clarity of the spots and the width of the belly um, and then how heavy the fur is and then size. So that is that is a tough a tough item in that um, you know if they're looking for something specific it could quickly affect the the once you run out of exactly what the buyers want the rest of the skins may be very difficult to get a good price for. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're looking at all the other cats, I'm just kind of looking through and trying to develop a bit of an average in my head so we don't go through all these numbers. But the the Canadian, the Southern. Uh, the central, north central, southwest, Canadian east. Basically, if you look at the last two years, all of the auctions, those are typically averaging between about forty and eighty dollars. So, so you look at that. That's a really big drop off uh, from the, the best cats to the rest. Yeah. How about mink? Mink haven't been selling. Mink. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so we're talking wild mink. Uh, that's just, I think, a, a real good example of the uh, reflection of the ranch mink market. Uh, if, mm-hmm. if you can get cheap ranch mink, you're not going to buy wild mink. So the last three auctions, no sale, no sale, no sale. Um, uh, NAFA, March 2019, they sold 35% for $9.00. NAFA May 2018, they sold a few. They sold uh, 40% in May for $14, 100% in March for $11. Uh, but basically, you're lucky to get, right now, you probably get, you're lucky to get 8 or $10. You're probably looking at 5 or $6 on mink. Yeah, the mink market is tough. And like the, the mink, like we, I briefly mentioned, it, the, the wild mink deal and, and the wild red fox, two, two items. You could probably do Red Fox next because their results are about as equally depressed. <laughs> Red Fox, no sale, no sale. Um, Fair Harvesters yeah. sold a few in March uh, of, of this year. Uh, the Northern Red Fox, they got about $16.50. Uh, they sold some Easterns for 23 Westerns for 11 half sold for eleven forty-two. Um, and last last year was a little better. Fox have fallen off for sure. Uh, fur harvester NAFA didn't sell fox for the most part last year. Fur harvesters, it looks like uh, they sold about half of them last May, and they ranged from seven dollars to twenty-nine. And in March, they ranged from nine dollars to twenty-eight. Just depending, those those uh, northern foxes seem to to get the better prices, followed by the easterns, and then everything else in, is uh, quite a ways back. Um, otter, you remember the good old days of otter bringing big money? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I do remember selling otter for $220. <laughs> so, uh, otter are one of those animals, just like mink and muskrat, they're pretty much one grade. I, I mean, they, as far as uh, regions, they, they don't split out. They're very similar. Um, it, uh, otter pelts are very similar geographically, uh, and in terms of what, what they look like in, in the market that wants them. So yeah, the the one thing with otter that I will say is 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 otter in the south are generally paler, and otter in the north are get a lot darker. So you do have a coloration difference there. Um, uh, there is a difference in fur quality, but yeah, you're right. There's not generally as big of a variance in price between a southern otter and a northern otter like there would be in the bobcats or the fox or the coyotes. So the last few auctions for otter. We have 77% sold at 20 bucks. Uh, no sale, no sale. 66% sold at 20 bucks. No sale. And back to last year, 72% at $25, 85% at $31. So $20, $30 on order if you can sell them. Yeah. What's next? How about, oh, coons. Boy, coons have so many different grades and varieties. <laughs> What do you think about the coon market in general, where it's been and where it's going? Um, I would say my, my immediate thought is I think the coon market's better than where anybody thought it would be a couple of years ago. Um, so that's encouraging. Um, I do think the as coyotes have gotten higher, some of the different manufacturers have turned to using raccoon for trim. So that has helped the market, especially with the heavies. Um, so I would say that, that the raccoon market is actually encouraging. Um, I, I think we're, we will, 
hopefully see some advances this fall. But by advances, I I wouldn't think that we're going to see like huge increases. But if we saw even five or ten percent increase in high clearances, to me that's a very good sign. So that's what I'd be. I would say I'm I'm hopeful. Um, especially after these last two sales, I I thought the coon were. Um, the little bit I listened to the sale when they were selling Coon, it does seem like there's buyer interest. And so that's an encouraging thing. Yeah, Coons are moving. So when the prices, a few years back when the prices were pretty good and they started dropping, uh, a lot of auctions you'd, you'd go through and they wouldn't sell any of the Coons. And I think the auction houses were hoping to hold off for better prices. And then, of course, the market continued to be flooded with these low-value Coons. And there was all this backlog of coons in freezers everywhere. And now it seems like we're working our way through that at a, at a lower mm-hmm. price. But it looks like the last two years, we're between 50 and 100% clearance of coons at most auctions. So yeah, yep. that's been encouraging. And just for comparison, we'll look at uh, Canadian coon uh, because they're pretty standard um, in the reports. Generally, uh, the last the FHA auction, Canadian coon got ten dollars. The NAFA auction, they get uh, nine sixty seven. Uh, before that, eight eighty six, nine eighty seven. Um, going back to last year, we were anywhere between four dollars and forty one cents to ten dollars and forty five cents for those Canadian coon. Um, so, so it bounced around a little bit, but some we're, in general, we're somewhere between eight and ten dollars on those. Um, when you get into the uh, the the better coons, geez, there's there's a few cases where you see some better averages, like uh, the uh, the west north central, um, the western heavy coons, uh, west north NAFA for harvesters grade uh, call them a little bit different, um, but these west north coons, uh, f- like from NAFA for instance, you're they're they're approaching seventeen eighteen dollars um, in the last few sales, so that's pretty good. Uh, the eastern coons, uh, they're just not a good coon. You're anywhere between uh, four dollars, uh, four and five dollars in general, uh, with a few uh, lower than that and a few higher. Um, what do you know? Like what your Illinois coon tend to uh, to grade into? Yeah, that's a that's a, a good question. That's what I was just gonna say. Like, so them better and heavy coon. Um, a lot of those coon that are selling for those averages would be from like the Dakotas to Wisconsin. Uh, Minnesota produces a lot of heavy, nice coon, and then like northern Iowa, northern Nebraska into Illinois. Um, that region, I would say, would be. And I'm in northern Illinois, so we we would have some percentage-wise, we have some coon that would fall into that category, um, but we also have some that would be more of a semi-heavy coon. Um, and then, like, the Easterns, you're talking, like, um, more, a lot of what their grade is Easterns would be, like, Indiana. Now, I should say, like, the, Michigan would be another state that would have heavy coon. And then, like, when you get into Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, you're going to run across some of those coon, but very, very low percentages. A lot of, as you get from like Indiana to uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Ohio, Pennsylvania, um, a lot of that is going to fall into Eastern type coon. 
Um, and then it, I would say when you get back into uh, like northern New York, and there's going to be heavier, better quality there. Um, and then, of course, like your coat type southern coon would be from like Tennessee to Florida over into like Louisiana, Arkansas. Yeah. Yeah. So that's coon. Uh, let's move into the water a little bit and then maybe we'll bounce back out on the land with coyotes. Uh, but we'll start okay. here with the muskrats. I, I like to go, you know, save a little bit of the good news for later on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the muskrats, uh, actually a little bit of improvement for rats. So again, that's an item that uh, they do vary uh, um, depending on size and, and uh, the quality of the pelt. But uh, they're, they're reported as one item because a good muskrat can come from anywhere in the country and a bad muskrat can as well. So it looks like, you know, we've been bouncing around last year. Muskrats were generally around uh, $3 to $3.50. Um, and the last few auctions of this year, they're closer to the $3.50 to $4 range. The, the most recent sale, the Fur Harvesters auction sold uh, 84% of muskrats for $4.03. And in March, fur harvesters sold 100% for $3.80. Uh, the NAFA, at that same time, they sold 98% at $3.59. So $3.50 to $4 is, is what we're looking at for rats. I think the muskrats, I, I mean, those numbers are very favorable in light of the ranch mink and uh, given the state of the market. I, I, I I, I felt the muskrats were positive. Yeah, easy to trap, easy to handle. Um, yeah, I, I think so. I, I think they're worth trapping at that. At that, maybe not mm-hmm. doing a long line, but um, uh, it's. It, I, I, I'm pretty happy with that. Uh, mm-hmm. However, the exact opposite end of the spectrum is the beaver. <laughs> so uh, you talked about the uh, the Hatter beaver market. Um, so so. The Hatter beaver market is typically in the past has been those Section 3 beavers, the southern beavers, the ones that are not uh, not prime, not uh, not shearable, not heavy. And our eastern beavers were used more for uh, coats. Uh, the coat market is pretty much dead. However, fur harvesters somehow managed to get an $18.69 average on 82% of the beavers sold in this last auction. Uh, I'm not sure how they did that. That's an advance of, uh, that. that's an overall average. And, and that's like $8 more than, than the last, uh, than the NAFA sale and $4 more than the fur harvester sale in March. Um, so that was a pretty favorable auction. But in general, uh, that spread between the Section 3 and the Southern Beaver and the top quality Northern and Eastern Beaver that spread has gotten tighter and tighter and tighter. And we're selling, uh, the best quality beaver are selling when the same price category as the worst, the lowest quality beaver. Um, right. Yeah. And that's, and that's, it didn't used to be that way, but it sure has the last, I would say 10 years or so. It's really gotten to that. Yeah. Prior to that, I remember, you know, 25 to $30 was a really good average on beaver up here for the beaver that we trap. And <clears> when, you know, we were getting $40, $45 in 2014, 2013, 2014 when that, that little spike happened. Um, but, yeah. But lately, 10 to ten to $13 has been about it. So, Right. 
and and that's like the same in in where you're at is a much better quality beaver than than what you uh, Illinois trapper would catch and we're getting like the same money for them basically yeah there was actually an auction in last March at NAFA the section three beavers the southern beavers went for ten dollars and thirty nine cents and the north the eastern beavers went for ten dollars and forty six cents so yeah exactly <laughs> we yeah, got very, seven cents yeah. more <laughs> mm-hmm. yep yep so so beavers uh you know the there's there's no positive when it comes to beaver pelts. However, the beaver caster market is super hot. And yeah, that's from a lure maker's perspective. The beaver caster market is just scary. Basically, um, you know, I, I, it's a very big struggle, um, and I think you know that's why we've seen lure prices advance the past couple of years because everybody casters a very valuable attractant, um, and my. One thing I would say about the beaver caster market, why I say I'm scared, is what goes up must come down, and at some point it's going to fall off. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I maybe it, it may be a while yet, but I mean, when I start hearing talk of all oh, once ninety and hundred dollar caster, I mean, it just that's crazy. Like to think that you can catch a spring beaver that has, uh, I have. Very rarely, but I have had be- I have caught beaver that had one pound casters in them before. That's a very very small percentage, uh, like a three out of my whole career, I think. Yeah. But to to say you could catch a beaver that has a quarter of a pound of caster that's worth twenty five dollars all at once. You got a beaver that fur and caster is worth thirty five or forty bucks. That's pretty good. That's pretty good for a beaver. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. It's it's sad though because. You can take the caster out in about two minutes, uh, and have mm-hmm. it all nice and cleaned up. Uh, and uh, it takes a it, it takes me a long lot longer than that to put up a beaver pelt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it's uh, it, it's it's interesting. The caster market uh, at Fur Harvester's March 2019 auction, the no, casters graded in number one, two, and three. One being the best. Uh, the one. Caster went for eighty dollars a pound, two seventy dollars, three sixty dollars. So that's probably as high as we've ever seen it in that auction market. Would you say? Yeah, yeah, and that's that's yeah that those are phenomenal numbers. And the thing is, um, you know, it 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 really squeezes a lure maker. But uh, I'm guessing the uh, the the perfume and the flavoring buyers are uh, are able to pay a little bit more for the caster than the lure maker is exactly yep that's for sure all right so um i'm gonna throw out a couple of i want to i want to give our friends to the north a little bit on links really quick uh, i remember when links were averaging 200 dollars, and uh, sadly they've been between 60 and 70 dollars pretty consistently over the past two years uh, the fur harvesters auction this past uh, month, links averaged one hundred and fourteen dollars and fifty two cents with seventy percent sold. So there was a little bump in the links market. That's great news, but but it's hard to tell whether that's going to uh, be able to uh, sustain itself or if if that's going to go back down. Um, and then Martin, Martin have gone down continually uh, just last year. You know, we had a NAFA auction last March where 100% of Martin sold. Semi-heavy Martin averaged $57, and uh, heavy Martin averaged 87 
and now we're down to uh, you know the semis are averaging around 30 30 to 40 dollars and the the heavies are averaging 50 to 60 and we may we may be a little lower than that in this most recent auction so um, that's a tough one uh, Fisher are tough as well and uh, Fisher did basically the last four auctions Fisher only sold in two of the four they sold at levels about a little over 50 percent for anywhere between uh, 25 and 40 dollars um, the skunk guys uh, what uh, I'll, I'll go through skunk and I want to ask you about essence um, skunk were selling basically 85 to 100 percent for around uh, around five bucks and uh, what, what do you know about the the market for skunk essence well we've been paying like we bumped our price up a little bit this year we've been offering 18 dollars an ounce and I think we're probably paying a little bit on the high side um, there might be I think there's probably uh, some lure makers that would maybe even pay slightly more um, but the skunk essence market is strong for sure and so I mean if you can get five dollars for the skin there's a lot of skunks that will also produce four or five dollars worth of essence there as well yeah and I think uh, for those of you who who don't know Kyle made a video a few years back on on skunks uh, what's that called the best investment you'll ever make yeah, the best skunk's the best investment you ever make, and and kind of the reasoning for that video was to show people how easy it is to collect skunk essence, and as a whole, generally speaking, the essence is worth more than the fur most of the time. Yeah, yeah. So so guys that catch a lot of skunks, uh, that that's definitely a good good market. If uh, it's pretty easy, if you check out Kyle's video on how to extract that, um, that's a, a pretty good deal. Uh, now, finally, let's. Uh, why don't we finish up with coyotes? So, what do you? What's your thoughts on the coyote market in general? Oh, that's a, definitely the brightest spot. Um, it kind of amazes me in a sense, um, but that's something that you know a lot of the coyotes are being used on the Canada goose type coats, where it's a trim hood. Um, you see them all over TV. Um, a lot of people would overlook it as being a fur coat because. It's just trim around the hood, essentially. And so that is, I, I think, that style or coat, and they use coyotes. Um, it's really pushed that market strong. And now, I mean, it's not just the Western coyotes. There's a lot of Midwestern, Eastern coyotes that are selling really strong, too. So that is one definite positive thing. Um, and hopefully that trend continues for a little while because it's an animal that requires so much equipment and cost to produce is high on a coyote. It's nice to see them at a, at a good profitable letter at a good profitable letter level for the trapper. Yeah, absolutely. And that's another case of a, a trend, a fad that hopefully mm -hmm. will continue. But, uh, you know, in two years, we, we never know. It could, it could be gone, so uh, we, we ought to take advantage of it while we can. Uh, those C Canada Goose parkas are selling for like $800. And yeah. what seems to be happening is uh, as those have increased in popularity, there's other companies that are making a more affordable uh, hood-trimmed parka uh, that at a lower, a lower price than Canada Goose, but they can't pay $100 for a Western Heavy Coyote, so they're they're buying up those lower quality coyotes and that seems to be bringing the prices of those up as well 
So right, and that's also where that style where they've started using some raccoons. I watched a, a YouTube video with with Guy Grunwald from Grunwald Fur and Wool, and he had come back from China, and he shows a, in that video he shows a a it looks like a Canada goose type coat with a raccoon trim. He bought one in China for a hundred dollars. So that's a very affordable coat, uh, a a very affordable coat that uses fur. Um, so that's, that's definitely helpful. And, uh, I think, you know, hopefully, like I say, we hope the coyote market stays strong, but inevitably fashion will change and something will happen. And then we'll see another item pop up (laughs) as being the the substitutes that come in could be just as popular as the the original. I mean, Canada Goose has a really strong brand right now, and they're very popular. Mm-hmm. But I just you know they they're a publicly traded company, and uh, so so you can follow their stock price. It's G O O S on the stock. It's a that's a ticker symbol, and they actually just reported some a little bit of a slowdown in growth. The company's still making money and they're still growing. But uh, the the stock it had kind of priced in some a really high rate of growth, and the, at the last earnings report, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, they the stock price dropped like thirty or forty percent. Um, it started to climb back up, but it's just an indicator. It's just a reminder that you know none of these you can never take this stuff for granted. Um, right. So those Western. Well, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Kyle. That's when you say take it for granted. It's kind of the coyote market to me right now is kind of like when the otter got hot around two thousand, early two thousands. Don't don't expect it to last forever, but we sure hope it lasts a few more years. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So the uh, the fur harvesters uh, May auction for Western heavy coyotes they averaged um, they sold at ninety five percent. All of these clearances are have been very, very high the last couple of years. Uh, th- these items are just selling out at really high levels. They averaged $100.43 for those Western Heavy Coyotes. And those typically are going to come from uh, the Northern Plains states. Uh, we talked to Garrett Volk from Volk Furs on the podcast uh, a couple months back. He buys a bunch of those out of North Dakota, uh, Montana, Wyoming. And uh, there's a few other states in that general area that, uh, and in Canada, of course, uh, Alberta, um, that general area will produce a very, very high quality coyote. Um, in, in March, those coyotes average 8750. Um, in um, May of last year, the Western heavy coyotes, uh, oh, I should go back. The Western heavy coyotes from NAFA <clears throat> of, for this year's sale was $112.84. And from March, they averaged 103.69. Um, last year, uh, fur harvesters 97.74 and 103.85. Uh, NAFA 194 and 105.96. So those top end coyotes are all bumping around $100 average, which is pretty incredible. Um, mm-hmm. And then, like you mentioned, Kyle, the the drop off uh, used to be very steep. I for many many years. Uh, uh, our northeastern coyotes were averaging $20, $25, and they're not really a good quality coyote. Uh, those have been between $40 and $60 uh, very consistently the past few years. Um, and then the, the central coyotes um, and the, the lower, the Section 3 coyotes, those have been anywhere between $20 and $40, depending on the auction. Those seem to have the highest level of volatility, and I think uh, my interpretation of what happens there is depends on how 
full the room is in the auction house during during the auction how many buyers are able to fill their orders by the time it comes down to those uh, those section three coyotes and the the semi-heavy coyotes and and the southern furs and uh, in those i don't know probably that uh, ohio area those those are tend to be a little bit lower quality coyote if there's still a lot of orders that are left unfilled those can potentially bump up to 30 40 dollars or they could be 15 or 20 dollars if there's not as much demand right yeah and, and i think you know the the like a lot of the coyotes that get rubbed in the shoulders you know if they need them desperately they'll use those coyotes because they can still cut strips out of the back below the shoulders um so yeah you see that when they really need them some of the the lower grades you see kind of a bump because there's a sense of urgency like well we gotta have it <laughs> yeah absolutely so i guess that's it in a nutshell those are those are the latest auction results that's the general state of the fur market um any more thoughts not really i, I think you, you, you covered it pretty well i i mean overall we we are we're still in the lean years but there's definitely some really positive things going on Absolutely. Probably worth continuing to trap, I would say. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, there's there's always, there's, there's, the one thing about it is when the market does recover, you got to have fur to sell then. Yeah. <laughs> so, you got to keep going. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, Kyle, thanks a lot. Uh, thanks a lot for being here and appreciate having you on and providing a bunch of perspective. Yeah, thanks for having me again. All right, we'll catch you next time. Sounds good. Thanks, Jeremiah. All right. Take care. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening in. I hope you enjoyed that episode and that deep dive into fur prices and what the fur market's doing. And if you'd like more information, maybe a basic overview of the things that Kyle and I talked about um, as pertains to the fur market, don't forget to check out my book, Fur Profit, A Trapper's Guide to the Modern Fur Market. It's kind of a beginner's introduction to the fur market, how it works and the various aspects, uh, things you need to consider, how to sell fur, and what to think about when you are uh, going through the process of selling fur. So Fur Profit, Trapper's Guide to the Modern Fur Market, you can find that basically pretty much most places that you look. Uh, you can get it at Cots Bros and Amazon.com. It's eligible for uh, free shipping, and it's uh, $12. You can get it on trappingtoday.com for that same price. And if you want to get it uh, immediately and you don't care if you get a hard copy of the book, you can pick up a, an ebook that's available on trappingtoday.com for five bucks and you get that immediately as a PDF download. You can also find Fur Profit from F&T for Harvester's Trading Post, from PCS Outdoors, our friend John Chagnon over there, and a bunch of other sources as well. So that'd be great. Uh, help support the podcast and learn a little more about the fur market. Thanks again, and we'll catch you on the next episode.